My name is Maya Deary. This episode is part of a series called The Waves to Wisdom Interviews. The project is a simple one. I seek out people I admire, surfers with what look to me to be ocean-centered wisdom practices. I ask them if they'd be willing to share a surf session or two, and then, after we've ridden some waves together, talk to me about their oceanic habits, about surfing, work, meaning, anything that comes up. To live life by the minimum standard and to build all my projects by the minimum standard, one, isn't going to be fulfilling for me as a person, but two, I don't think it's going to create a very beautiful world. And, uh, and that's something that I want. That's something that I want to live in. That's something that I want to pass on to the future generations. So yeah, I think we need codes. I think we need standards. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're valuable. But to uh, live your life by checking that box and checking that box alone isn't going to be adequate for us as a species to survive on this planet and isn't going to be adequate for us as an individual to find fulfillment and uh, much less connection with each other and all the other beautiful things that, that can occur on the planet if we do things right. I first came across Ethan Crouch through his work with the local chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. He's one of the people working hard to make sure the beaches I and so many others enjoy are still healthy, accessible places. He's a business owner, consultant, passionately committed surfer and board shaper, and he's been generous enough to speak to several groups of my students in the past. His ability to articulate the ways in which his undergraduate training in philosophy prepared him for a financially and emotionally abundant life working in the construction industry have inspired more than a few of those students to think much more broadly about the possibilities for their own learning. In our conversations for this interview, Ethan cited the ideas of two 20th century philosophers, Martin Buber and Emmanuel Levinas, as powerful currents in his own life. Both of these philosophers wrote about ethics based on deep connection. I loved Ethan's story of connection with the ocean and our shared community, and his commitment to leave a more beautiful world in the wake of his life. Okay, if you are comfortable with it, would you tell me your name, age, and how long you've been surfing? Uh, okay, yeah, my name is Ethan Crouch. Uh, I'm 36 years old, and I've been surfing, I don't know, for, I guess pretty consistently for 17 years, 15 I don't know. Okay, so ten, yeah. twelve years, fifteen years. <laughs> um, so we're. It sounds like you might have done some surfing in college. Yeah, that's when I really got committed to surfing. Is in in college, and uh, upon graduation, you know what I determined was uh, I wanted to live by the coast. So that's when I got, I'd say, full time <laughs> into uh, surfing. So that was two thousand five. So um, ten years full time, I'd say easily. Okay, so. and and did you go to school near the coast? I did. Uh, I was fortunate enough, went to um, a school called Christopher Newport University in um, southeastern Virginia, outside of Virginia Beach in the Hampton Roads area. What did you study in college? Um, I studied philosophy. The department there is a philosophy and religious studies department. My major ended up being, um, you know, an ethics uh, philosophy major. At that point in your life, did there seem to be any overlap between your surfing habits and what you were studying in your philosophy and religious studies classes? Hmm. Um, I'd say so. I was, you know, at that point I was still really learning to surf. And you don't just grab a board and uh, paddle out 
your first day and then you know you've learned to surf <laughs> uh, as you know Maya learning to surf is an ongoing practice so you, you know initially you know that my surfing experiences um, were you know I think more of an escape uh, from the philosophical chaos that I was going through uh, as an undergraduate student you know because I was trying to you know really learn a lot about myself too as an undergraduate you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, and um, so philosophy was really uh, helpful in that journey, um, but but a difficult one. Um, but as I've kind of gotten older and gotten more, you know, comfortable and, and more understanding of who I was and, you know, was able to weave all the different philosophies that I was learning about into my own kind of, you know, concept of reality, um, and, and as I got more and more comfortable surfing, um, it, it, it definitely changed uh, my relationship with the ocean and surfing and um, you know then it's more about connection. My experience with the ocean is a, is a quiet time, um, a time of harmony and, and peace for me, um, except when it gets real big. <laughs> then, it, then, it, then it's a whole different thing. Um, whereas philosophy for me was, um, you know, was a, an experience of seeking trying to get truth and trying to understand it and put my hands around it and truth like so many things you know it's like trying to hold on to water it kind of keeps squeezing out of your hands but surfing was was actually experiencing it where you know philosophy are trying to write it down and trying to put it into words and so that that in and of itself I think is what's really attracted me to the ocean and and why I can't ever see myself going far from it uh, because it's become such a foundation you know in my life and and a way to experience the world and not have to overanalyze it, which is, is a tendency of mine as a person, I think. It would certainly explain your uh, attraction to philosophy as a major, as an undergraduate. Did you, when you were, you know, just a teenage boy going into college, did you know that this is what you wanted to study? Or did you take a class and just discover it? Yeah, I had no idea. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, I was very sports focused. When I picked my course load, you know, one night at the kitchen table uh, at 18 years old, you know, I had to sign up for a minimum of 12 credits, you know, and so I needed, you know, however many classes, you know, four classes to to fill the, 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 the semester and came across philosophy and I said, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll go for it. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I think my first day in, in philosophy after he passed out the syllabus and taken role, my professor Muchamp started started talking about the bicameral mind and the duality of our existence and all of a sudden my you know my eyes just popped open and I was just like hold on what <laughs> you know um, and from there I, I just just kind of got hooked and you know I didn't really know that world existed but I knew when I went to college I wanted to, to study I wanted to get into knowledge and I wanted to learn Whereas, you know, in high school, I got decent grades and I enjoyed learning, but it was more secondary to all the other things that it is growing up as a, you know, teenager and, and a high school quarterback and all that stuff is kind of secondary. So I wanted to get away from that and, and I wanted to learn in my undergraduate and, and I quickly realized, you know, philosophy is like the study of knowledge itself. You know, that whole dialogue of, of, of 
truth and beauty and love and all these things is, is um, what really sparked my attention and, and grabbed me. And, um, you know, that's what I came to school for. So I, I went, went, went for it. I said, I'll figure out what jobs and all that stuff, you know, means afterward. Right now I'm, I'm here to explore and search and find out who I was and, and find out who the world was. I have been for, for some time and still am a, uh, an instructor at a small liberal arts college similar to Christopher Newport, although farther from the coast, tragically. Uh, but, um, but it strikes me that that freedom that you allowed yourself to just explore the world and young Ethan is rare in my experience among young people and, and has gotten increasingly so. Um, in part because at some point they seem to have internalized a message about practicality and that you need to be practical and go into a field even as an 18-year-old um, that will earn you a job and a decent paycheck. And uh, we're, we're doing this interview right now in your beautiful home on Carolina Beach and you don't seem to be somebody who has struggled to employ himself with a philosophy major. Can, can you speak to young people about majoring in something that they're not going to, and I hear this all the time, this is a direct quote, they're not going to use? Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Um, but, but I, you know, I see that because, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I consider myself a pretty practical person as well. Um, but gosh, one thing, you know, I'm, like I said, 36 years old now, and I've been in the, in the working world professionally for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And um, what I've learned about the, the business world and, and the economies this day and age with the, you know, international way economies work is there's so many jobs out there that you have no idea even exist, especially as a 17, 18, 20, 22 year old kid. For example, I mean, I'm a, I own my own consulting firm now in the construction industry, um, doing a very specialized niche of work. Um, and I had, I didn't even know this job existed. I didn't even know this, the skills that I use on a daily basis existed. So, you know, when you're, you know, 18, 19, you think, okay, I can be a doctor, I can be a lawyer, I can be a fireman or a teacher, you know, or what, you know, the five, ten jobs that, you know, you learn about. But the reality of the economy is that there's bazillions of jobs and titles and positions that employ who know that skills that you don't even know about. Um, for me, in, in choosing a philosophy degree, um, I unwittingly um, gained some amazing skills that I feel catapulted me in, in my career um, in the construction industry, you know, believe it or not. <laughs> Philosophy as well as, you know, that search for truth and uh, searching for meaning and, and understanding and all that. I also learned how to critically think. I learned how to read. I learned how to write. I learned how to express complicated emotions and complicated logical theorems, both orally and written. 
and, and so I developed, I think, a really interesting and valuable set of skills through that pursuit of knowledge. And, and lo and behold, I get out of my undergraduate, and you know the way I paid for my undergraduate was was swinging a hammer as a carpenter. And so I, when I went, you know, I finished school, and I said, all right, well, I guess I'll figure out what I'm going to do in life. But in the meantime, I'll keep paying the bills as a construction guy. But then all of a sudden, I realized amongst my cohort in the industry that you know I could communicate with customers really well. I could communicate with the boss really well. I could write reports really well. I could look at a complex set of problems and analyze them and figure out the best solution and prioritize what we had to do for the day. And, you know, all of a sudden, all these things that I learned in philosophy literally catapulted me in my construction career. And before I knew it, I was the manager. And I was the boss of a, you know, a company that was flying me all over the world, meeting with, you know, diplomats and all sorts of things that Without my philosophy skills, I wouldn't be able to even, you know, communicate with these people that were much my much more my senior at this point, too. Um, How old were you at this point? Uh, well, uh, I guess I really got into international work at 26 years old. By the time I was 28, 29, uh, I was the general manager of a $30 million construction company that were doing, you know, international construction projects all over the world. I still have found that um, the critical thinking and analytical skills, I think it's really the analytical skills that have um, really enabled me to be a success. Especially now, I'm hired to come in as a third-party consultant and analyze huge swaths of information and you know projects that have been running for many, many years and create you know, a con- concise narrative as to causation of delays and damages that you know, my clients have incurred and, and to be able to put that into a concise report. That is uh, almost ironically verbatim like what I learned in, as an undergraduate philosophy student. You know, master's degrees, I think, can be much more specific. So f- for me, for example, I went back, I got my master's degree in construction management. You know, after I decided, you know, okay, I was at this point, I think I was 24 or 25 when I went back to grad school. I worked full time during my grad school um, because I had to pay for that. You know, I had to still pay my bills. But at that time, you know, I'd worked in the field, you know, I had a job for a couple of years and, you know, started to realize that I I felt comfortable working in construction and felt passionate about construction, loved building things. Um, and I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I, f- I feel kind of right here. But at 18, 19 years old, to, to, to decide that f- what you're going to be and what you're going to do and, and try to build your undergraduate degree around that, I think is completely impractical and unrealistic. So at this point, you are still an, an active surfer. Can you talk a little bit about how surfing fits in with this busy life as a construction consultant? Yeah, surfing gets, is, is, is my foundation. Surfing is about connecting with a wave. And that wave is connected to the ocean, and the ocean covers two-thirds of the world and is one of the most powerful forces on the earth, and it helps me stay grounded. Nothing will humble you more than getting pummeled <laughs> by a wave, especially if the wave's you know two feet tall, 
it's still an ocean, yeah. even with little waves. So it's so humbling, you know, and that's something um, that, that I've found great value in. You know, sometimes I get out in the water, I get out in life and think, you know, I'm doing great, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm killing this surf session and catching all these waves. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get flipped over on your head and fall and, you know, everybody's laughing at you and you're laughing at yourself and you just realize how silly the whole thing is in the beginning. In, in the, anyway, so that's why I think it, it's been so helpful for me to, again, kind of as a, act as a foundation in life. It's that humility, it's that connection to the, to the world, to the planet, uh, and to the you know, forces beyond, for sure. And, and also get physical exercise. I, I think that's something that's really, really important. And I think something as a society we're, we're failing on, especially as people get older in life. You know, I'm 36 and I plan to surf till I'm dead. <laughs> um, Me too. <laughs> And um, physically, the reward that that's yielded me, you know, I feel like I'm in shape and makes my arms strong and, you know, my core strong and um, which helps with my back pain issues that are often caused by sitting in a desk all day and typing away at the keyboard. So, yeah, surfing is, is a huge foundation for me and a, and a way to unplug and a way to plug in at the same time. And you are active and have been for some time with an organization called Surfrider. For anybody who's listening, tell them a little bit about Surfrider as an organization and your role in it, why you're drawn to work with them. Yeah, absolutely. Surfrider Foundation's a really, really unique nonprofit. It's a really, truly grassroots organization that has, I think, 80-some chapters across the U.S., and I think 15, 16 different countries uh, across the world now. It's been on operation for over 30 years, started in, in uh, Southern California uh, with a mission of the dedication to the protection and enjoyment of our oceans, waves, and beaches through a powerful activist network. So essentially, Surfrider is all about um, trying to protect our coasts and encourage what we like to call non-consumptive recreation. You know, there's other ways to have fun besides going to the mall and going shopping. So Surfrider, that's the enjoyment component to the mission in that um, we're all about encouraging folks to get out and experience those coastal resources, spend time on the beach, spend time in the ocean. You know, sure, surfing, um, but, you know, beachcombing and, and just spending the day with your family uh, experiencing the ocean. And, and then protecting, therefore protecting those resources. One thing I've noticed over the last couple of decades, and even more so over the last couple of years, is how many of us seem to want to engage meaningfully with some kind of political or social or environmental process, but we get overwhelmed and don't know where to start. I really wanted to know about the steps Ethan had taken that got him from being a college kid falling in love with the ocean, who just had some initial impulses to protect it, to who he is today, which is an effective and powerful change agent in our local community. I got involved with Surfrider real casually uh, as an undergraduate student. You know, I was quickly falling more and more in love with the ocean. I think as a somewhat conscientious person, I also kind of quickly realized or wanted to conserve that resource you know, for myself and maybe for my kids one day and for, you know, posterity in general. 
I know how much enjoyment and pleasure and happiness that the ocean has brought me, it just seemed to then make pretty easy sense to want to protect it. And so I started out, again, real casually participating in beach sweeps. You know, one of the most common things surf rider chapters across the country do is, is organize beach sweeps. It's just getting people together to go out and, and walk the beach and collect trash. And, you know, that which will subsequently reduce, you know, marine debris that, that ends up being eaten by fish and then injected in our entire, you know, food streams and and I got, so as I got more into surfing and more slowly more involved into wanting to do more to protect the ocean, I kind of got more involved in surf rider. <laughs> After moving to um, Carolina Beach uh, in 2009, we, uh, the, the local chapter started to do some efforts around Wilmington and New Hanover County to reduce the amount of single-use plastics that we were using. And so I was like, hmm, as a member of Surfrider, doing more and more research about what that was and quickly started to learn about, you know, some of the travesties that we as humans are, are doing to our oceans uh, with the tons and tons of marine debris that we're creating, you know, every year. And so I got more and more passionate about, you know, getting involved in the organization and became a board member, executive board member, and after two years as an executive board member, became the chair for the local chapter, and uh, acted as the chair for the local chapter for four, four and a half years. And currently, I'm um, uh, on the executive board as a board member at large. And again, as with Surfrider, I mentioned that it's a grassroots organization, and it really is. And that, that was what was inspiring to me. Our chapter, you know, we saw things locally that were impacting our beaches, and Surfrider empowered us to tackle those issues and gave us resources and knowledge and, and experience on how to tackle those local issues that were affecting our beach. Many of you might have heard about the growing problem of plastic in our waterways and oceans, leading inevitably to plastic in our food. If you haven't, check out the Waves to Wisdom website for more information. Now, as Ethan describes it, the cigarette problem was an annoyance. And they are annoying, but research indicates the problem is much worse than that. Most of these butts are composed of cellulose acetate, in other words, plastic. Once the cigarette's been smoked, that butt contains toxins that have been shown to be lethal to aquatic life in concentrations as low as one butt per two gallons of water. The United Nations Development Program reported that, quote, each year, four and a half trillion cigarette butts are littered worldwide. By far the most littered item, with a significant percentage finding their way into our oceans and onto our shores. Now, for whatever reason, it seems people who wouldn't otherwise litter don't have the same compunction about throwing them on the ground or beach. As honorable as beach sweeps are, they clearly weren't gonna solve the problem, even on a hyper-local level. For example, at Wrightsville Beach, just a, a barrier to island up north, uh, we, we were in our periodic beach sweeps. You know, one of the biggest things we were finding is cigarette butts. Um, every time we go out, and one of the number one items we'd collect at every beach sweep in our beach was cigarette butts. And we were kind of getting sick of it, to be honest. Um, and so we said, well, well, let's see if we can do something about curbing the litter practice. And, and, and we quickly learned 
that it, it was very difficult to, to enforce litter for cigarettes because they're so small, they blend into the sand, uh, and we didn't want to burden lifeguards and or police with trying to monitor every smoker on the beach. And so through the Surfrider Network, did research, what are other beach communities doing? And, um, you know, the other 80-some chapters around the country said, hey, well, we actually were able, uh, had the same issues that you're facing, and we're able to pass a smoking ban to prevent smoking actually on the beach strand. And we found that it was really effective in subsequently reducing the amount of litter we found of cigarette butts. We said, oh, that sounds like a great idea, good idea. How did you do that? And so they were able to share those resources with us, as well as, you know, our, our national organization providing legal background and legal review of the town's bylaws and the state constitution and the state ordinances that that would enable legislation to be passed or not be passed. And so we were able to kind of use that that experience and leverage it locally to pass a smoking ban at Wrightsville Beach. And, you know, it took many years and many effort, lots of effort to get it done, but we did it, you know, and, and without Surfrider and that support and that legal support and that experience, a group of surfers probably wouldn't have been successful at at doing something like that. So many people I know uh, tend to struggle a little bit with being overwhelmed at the scale of problems, but that kind of local, global partnership seems like a very good approach to empower people locally, as you say, and also keep that global perspective and network. Exactly, exactly. I, I think it's really unique in that way. And and then there was all these tertiary benefits that had happened. You know, it starts to build a community. And I think our chapter now is just that. You know, it's this you know, strong community of people that are fishermen, moms, hardcore surfer dudes, beachcombers, retirees, high school students that are all passionate about the ocean. Surfiders brought us together, and I've developed these amazing relationships with people that you really bond with when you're working towards common goals. And it and tremendously helped me in my career as well. You know, I mean, Surfrider empowered me to go speak at town council meetings. You know, when you can speak to a packed house of 200 people that you've mobilized to come to a town council meeting to fight offshore drilling and, and can speak authoritatively on the issue and, and convincing to your council members, you know, that's, that's a really good skills to get to learn uh, that'll help, that's helped me in, in all variety of situations in life. That shared passion thing is such an important uh, and, and effective agent to combat some of the loneliness that I see a lot of my uh, students face when they go out in the world and they have trouble with the loss of that community. It's um, that, uh, that activism and companionship through activism certainly is a powerful force. It really is. It really is. And, and, that, and, and it ha- that happened by accident. <laughs> that was the neatest thing, you know. Um, somebody at one of our chapter meetings, Kenny Rinks, um, who's a, a, a great woman, um, brought that up. And, and, I'd, and it was like, duh. I, you know, I'd been working so hard on like legal reviews of different, you know, or town ordinances and um, you know and, and she had mentioned that at one of the meetings and I just kind of looked up and looked around the room and was like oh my god I love you guys <laughs> we've worked so hard together for so many things you know wow I really do love you all um, and and so that 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 
that's been something really neat that that there was a total surprise another way the ocean connects you to something greater than yourself absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely. so powerful do you have anything to say to you're 36 mm. right mm -hmm. and uh a lot of my friends I know who are about your age are in the process of starting families of their own. Do you have anything to say to young parents based on your experience of being parented? Because uh, I can tell you that the, the undergraduate, the educational experience that you describe, which is one in which you are active and have agency, is unusual. You know, as an educator, I would certainly like to see more young people feel like they're in this for themselves mm. and what they can learn about who they are and how they fit in. Uh, I wonder if you have anything to say to parents about what worked for you as a child in terms of being mm. parented. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, my parents were strict. <laughs> my parents were real strict. Um, and, and my parents made me work. And they reminded me constantly um, of of the roof over your head, you know, kind of conversation. But you know, and it would seem like a you know roll your eyes kind of burdensome thing as a young kid having to do chores. Uh, we had a wood stove, and my job, you know, from 14 on, was to make sure all the firewood was chopped and there was stacked next to the front door and a backup stack inside and a third stack out in the backyard and you know and, and that was my job to keep that fully stocked at all times during the winter and it, you know that wasn't you know a chore that I got paid for or a pat on the back for it was you know you're part of this family and we need that done <laughs> and so it was just kind of old school in that way I grew up in you know, suburban America, but it was, you know, and that mentality was kind of the life on the prairie mentality. Like, we need to stay warm, so keep the fire stoked. <laughs> and so, you know, my parents were really strict in that regard and that, that, that I needed to support myself financially as well for if I, if I wanted special things, you know. I mean, obviously, they, they paid for all the groceries. They paid the mortgage. They did it. You know, they paid for everything. But if there was something special I wanted, I had to go earn it. You know, I was just, you know, snowboarded when I was a lot, when I was growing up. And they're like, great, if you want to snowboard, save up some money and buy a snowboard. And I did, <laughs> you know, and, and I love that snowboard. I still got it to this day because <laughs> uh, I cut grasses and I shoveled snow and, um, you know, saved birthday money and, you know, um, you know, worked uh, for my buddy's construction, my buddy's dad's construction company in the summers and the and um, and the weekends, and scraped money together so I could buy my buy a, a, a snowboard. And you know, and that taught me, I think, so much, and it made me very self reliant. And I think in this world, self reliance and, and resiliency is is the key if you're going to be successful in anything and not just go crazy <laughs> uh, because it's tough out there. We're all connected more than we ever are, but we're all more distant than we ever have been as a species at the same time. And that upbringing, you know, I think encouraged me to, to be able to take care of myself and gave me the skills and learned how to save money and learned how to work hard. And, and I think that coupled with obviously the, the knowledge and experience that I gained through undergraduate and, and also in the work world. But that, that work ethic is what they really, I think, instilled in me 
and um, I'm so thankful for them instilling that work ethic. Because then when I hit the professional world, it was just, yeah, of course, we're going to work till this is done. You know, I'm not going to work till my time's up. I'm going to work till the project's done. I don't, I didn't, you know, spend my one hour chopping wood. No, I spent as much time as I needed till the wood was all chopped. <laughs> you know, that's reality, you know, and that's how you become successful in the professional world, whether it's IT or construction or pharmaceutical, whatever industry. Not... I, I gave it my best effort. You know, they, they weren't satisfied with that <laughs> at all, at all. <laughs> and so I, I appreciate my parents for, for those things. And I, I paid for the majority of my undergraduate. I did get some student loans and they helped me with books and so forth now. Uh, but to answer your question about your students' experience, it, it was liberating for me in that if my parents were paying for the whole of my undergraduate degree, they would probably have a significant decision as to what major I was going to take because they were paying for it. Whereas for me, I was paying for it myself, so this I'm here, I'm paying for it, this is what I want to do, and this is what I want to pursue. We've surfed a, a couple times now, recently, um, and... It's been the full North Carolina range. Last week it was. It's cold now. It's it's winter time, and and uh, it got hollow enough and fast enough that I and my longboard thought better of it and got out of the water. And and today it was. Uh, what do you think? Six to eight inches, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Six know, to eight Hawaiian. Sets, a couple <laughs> yeah. of those sets look look pretty big. I think you yeah. got the you got the pretty big one today. I got the I got the uh, the the shin high double over. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I overheard this fascinating conversation with you and one of your usual surfing friends where you were talking about uh, one of your jobs or a tendency in one of your jobs, and, and you were referring to some engineer who it was based in the Midwest who is um, running calculations and making recommendations about a way to build something that is completely impractical it really even impossible for the local conditions. And this is something that in my own personal life, my professional life, one could even say my spiritual life, I have run into over and over again, which is that standardization is sometimes the enemy of truth. And I wonder if you have anything to say about that, because you are in a business that must have to deal with global standards. I wonder if you have anything to say, uh, kind of in the same theme of how the local and the global are intersecting today. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, you continue to use the metaphor of construction. You know, you need codes and, and you need standards to achieve the minimum uh, requirements to build X, Y, or Z, a house, so that the house doesn't fall over. But it's often, I think, forgotten that the building code is just that. It's the minimum standard that can be applied you know, across a vast variety of environments and different scenarios. But to try to take that approach of the code is the right way to do things all the time, uh, is you're going to fall short. You're not going to be able to build your project. And so, you know, you need to, for this, this is the piling example, you know, you need to understand the local conditions and how, 
you know, the water table interacts locally with our sand as a pile is being driven. And, you know, the conditions that are, you know, in the Midwest are completely different. So it's important that there's a minimum code and that we need the rigidity of the structure to stand and not fall. But to try to apply that to every scenario, you know, just doesn't work. It's not constructible. <laughs> but that's, you know, I think the same thing goes for life too, right? I mean, you know, there, there's minimum standards that I think we as a people uh, need to take, you know, when interacting with one another, interacting with the, the physical world, whether it's, you know, hey, don't litter. <laughs> but that's a minimum standard, you know, that's not, every, you know, everything else is okay. For me, life's been, hey, well, let's organize a litter cleanup, not just don't litter. So uh, to live life by the minimum standard and to build all my projects by the minimum standard, one, isn't going to be fulfilling for me as a person, but two, I don't think it's going to create a very beautiful world. And, uh, and that's something that I want. That's something that I want to live in. That's something that I want to pass on to the future generations. So, yeah, I think we need codes. I think we need standards. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're valuable. But to uh, live your life by checking that box and checking that box alone isn't going to be adequate for us as a species to survive on this planet and isn't going to be adequate for us as an individual to find fulfillment and uh, much less connection with each other and all the other beautiful things that, that can occur on the planet if we do things right. You're a small business functioning in an economy whose rules look pretty destructive to the environment at the moment. Do you have any ideas about how businesses should, could act in this moment when it, it seems, and I'm certainly no scientist, but it certainly seems like we're at this crux point? Mm. In terms of like my business just in construction or businesses as in general? Either way, any way you, you feel like you have something valuable to contribute to that. Hmm. Well, I, I love the, the, the tangible reality of construction. That's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed the field. So I'll stick with that metaphor. Um, you know, there's the, there's the right way to build and then there's the wrong way to build. You know, minimum code standards aside, there's, there's still best practices. You know, there's best design practices, there's best management practices, there's best construction techniques. And we have an obligation, I think, to, to choose the best. Uh, and, or, or at least pursue the best. And the fastest, easiest, cheapest way to do things it isn't an effective model to be a sustainable species. <laughs> you know, if we just build everything and, and use everything that's disposable and has a life cycle of 20 minutes, yet persists in our environment for hundreds of years, it doesn't make sense and is going to cause the collapse of our species and our planet. I, I feel feel very strongly about that, that that's a truth. You know, there's only so many resources on the planet. There's only so many landfills, and they're all filling up. And what's happening subsequently is that more and more debris and more and more of the stuff that we're done with and throwing away uh, is ending up in our oceans. So we need to build sustainably. Um, we need to build durable products that are reusable, that can have, you know, a long life. And... Um, and I think, too, also add value to your own life. You surround yourself uh, with the disposable things. That, that, I think, has a huge impact on your, the way you live on a day-to-day -day basis as well as the way you interact with the physical world. 
in the construction world, we're starting to get better at, I think, to be honest, in some ways. You know, we have programs like the LEED certification program that defines, you know, best practices for sustainable construction uh, that includes site selection and best materials and locally sourced materials and all these sorts of things. And that's growing. You know, that's a growing trend in the industry. And I think things like that need to continue to grow. Uh, there's also, I think, better planning. Things like urban infill mixed-use developments can be beneficial to communities uh, as opposed to just rampant sprawl um, where it's, it's fast and easy to build a single-story strip mall. But then you have to, next door to that, build more houses. And then next door to that, build uh, office space. And then we've taken up three times the footprint that we could have taken if we created a mixed-use structure. So there's best ways to do things. And, you know, that, that in terms of how we're going to manage our planet and manage our companies, you know, that, that's what, what I seek uh, and what I try to pursue. And, and in our company... We're lucky in that we're carving out a niche with uh, public facilities because some, that's something I'm really passionate about and I enjoy, kind of similar to the beach. We're working on several public parks right now. Um, and so we can build parks that preserve green spaces in urban environment and also will encourage people to be active. And, you know, so there's lots of exciting, really cool things that we can do as businesses, as, you know, corporations and stuff. If we, again, you know, you know, pursue that quality, pursue the best, and not just accept the minimum code standards. <laughs> for behavior uh, as well as for, construction. For right? behavior, <laughs> for construction, for, you know, how you manage your business and how, you know, the policies that you set up in your corporation, all, all the above. Sounds like it's pretty important that, you're, that your corporation is privately owned and not beholden to the shareholders to maximize their profit. Well, yeah, we start to, I mean, for me, certainly, yeah, I'm a small business and I can pretty easily um, set those standards and, and try to encourage that amongst my employees. But I've got hope. I've got hope that, you know, shareholders can also see the value in, in those types of organizations. But I'm seeing it out from the outside. I'm seeing good companies be successful and add value to shareholders. And so it can be done. You know, I've got hope. If the shareholders will demand it as well, um, it works both ways, I think. You know, you can maximize profits and create a sustainable company, not just, you know, sustainable in that you don't use styrofoam cups in the coffee maker, but a sustainable company that's not 100% committed to 15% growth every year. I think that's a trap of capitalism that a lot of us fall into in our pursuit of businesses and shareholders and also life, though. I don't think we have to grow at 15% every year, <laughs> you know? Why don't we sustain uh, our growth, you know? And why don't we sustain our company and develop long-term relationships with our clients and just work on trying to do the best we possibly can for them? And growth or no growth, if you're doing that and you're providing a good quality product uh, and it's you're doing the best that you can and you're doing the best for your clients, our business has been very successful by doing just that. Is there a philosopher whose work is still important to you or influential? Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, lots. Gosh, I mean, but to put one, I mean, Emmanuel Lebanon still always will weigh heavily on me. 
you know, his concept of totality and infinity, I think has really shaped my worldview. Has it influenced, do you think you're thinking of as a surfer? Hmm. Yeah. Or vice versa? A little bit. Has your experience as a surfer contributed to your understanding of a little bit. totality and infinity? A little bit, for sure. Surfing is a tangible experience with infinity. You know, and that's a powerful experience. <laughs> and, you know, him and Martin Buber really start to, I think, delve into that. It impacted me spiritually as well as as a person, you know, in general. But that experience with otherness and, you know, the thou and, and infinity and things well beyond ourself, you know, surfing, you know, goes hand in hand with that experience. You know, just sitting out, looking out over on the horizon and just seeing as far as you can see vastness. It makes me feel really small, but it also inspires me in some really unique way. And I don't know what it is <laughs> exactly, um, but it's an experience with infinity. For more information about Emmanuel Levinas, Martin Buber, the Surfrider Foundation, Waves to Wisdom coaching and retreats, visit wavestowisdom.com.